If anyone were to ask employees in what we term, you know, the nonprofit industry about fundraising, those employees would tell you something about fundraising gala events, grant writing, endowment building, and capturing major donors. You would hear about the moves management theory of fund development, moving donors up the ladder. Some prominent experts in our industry jokingly refer to the quote-unquote industrial fundraising complex that has grown up around the social sector and sometimes engulfs it. But what if I were to tell you that everything we believe in nonprofit fundraising is wrong? At least it is for small organizations. Welcome to 501c3BS, busting the myths of the social sector and deprogramming you for organizational growth. Brought to you by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton College of Business and Economics, celebrating our 25th anniversary year in 2021. I'm Zoot Velasco, director of the Gianneschi and your host for this podcast journey. We concentrate on attracting fleeting donors and grants when we should be focused on earned income streams that sustain us. Depending on which national or California state studies one follows and how they are measured, earned income is between 50 and 72% of the average organization's budget. Yes, you heard me correctly. And what do I mean when I say earned income? I mean fees for services, social enterprise, and contracts. Things that we do that earn money directly for our organizations rather than fundraising, which is developed around donated income. Economists would say there's an opportunity cost for focusing on fundraising. We train and spend time and money to be more successful at raising grants and donors, which together is about 21% of the average budget according to the Center for Charitable Statistics at the Urban Institute, but not to increase earned income and better manage the full budget. As we head into a new recession, how can we do better? Well, I did a research project just to answer this question. I looked at all the 990 tax form data for 6,450 nonprofit organizations in total from 2008 to 2018 in Orange, San Bernardino, and Riverside counties. These nonprofits generated $13.5 billion in total income in 2012, a bit less in 2008. Together, these counties mirror the United States in many ways. As a region, when taken together, they have a bit higher ratio of Asian Pacific Islanders than the U.S. as a whole, but otherwise are almost identical in demographics, political structure, rural to urban mix, and socioeconomics. So by me studying these three counties in California, I'm studying a microcosm of the United States. We looked at three data points to determine their growth and survival. 2008 as the recession got started, 2012 as the recession ended, and 2018, the last tax reporting on file. Of the 6,450 organizations, only 3.2% 207 total organizations grew by double or more between 2008 and 2012. We explored each of these organizations more closely. Of the 207 organizations, 14% went defunct by 2018. That means they got a big chunk of money during the recession and then lost it all and went out of business by 2018. 
Another 51% shrunk back to their former size in 2008 or froze at 2012 numbers. In most cases, it appears that these defunct and shrinking organizations, they grew through some limited funding, that is maybe a one-time bailout, but they could not sustain that growth. 14% of these heroes were tiny organizations that made it from small to growing. They grew significantly every year from 2008 until 2018, but they never were able to break that million dollar a year budget that we've set up for them to be in that private club at the top. Well, there's always next year. You see, when an organization reaches the size of a million dollars, they reach the private club where 20% of organizations get 80% of all the funding. And those 20% organizations over a million dollars. That's nationally. Well, and then after we got through these groups, we studied what we call the recession stars. These are 29 organizations that started out small in 2008 and they grew by 200% or more during the recession, continued to grow, joining the Million Dollar Club by 2012, and still growing to this day. The smallest, the Valley Restart Center, increased by over 300%. The largest, Charitable Ventures, rose by a whopping 3,880%. Recession stars were not organizations whose missions directly addressed the ravages of the recession. They included a pet shelter, a gay and lesbian center, youth sports teams, a choral group, a veterans group, and even an RV club. 90% of all income through the recession came from just 11% of organizations, those over a million dollar annual budget. That means that 89% of organizations are small and accounting for only 4% of all income. Recession stars grew from very small to very large, swimming upstream against these massive currents and the Great Recession itself. So what do these organizations have in common? Well, I studied the 29 recession stars in depth, and I was able to interview 20% of their leaders who agreed to speak on the record, and I noted five critical connections. One, dynamic leadership. These 29 recession stars had a dynamic leader who had some training in best practices of management and leadership. Not all leaders ooze charisma. Some were very introverted and administrative. As Jim Collins says when speaking about his book, Good to Great and the Social Sector, and I quote, your leader does not have to be charismatic if the cause is charismatic. All of these leaders had been through training either in for-profit jobs, church programs, or university programs. All have embraced the idea that leadership is about creating an army of other leaders following their cause. The passing of the torch of leadership is what wins the race. In 2008, the organization Cure Duchesne reported $511,000 in annual revenue. Its mission is to cure Duchenne disease, a rare form of muscular dystrophy that affects roughly one male teen out of 3,500 births. Founder Deborah Miller created a community, leveraged partnerships, and built leaders with Cure Duchesne parents and corporate contacts around the country to raise funds used solely for research. Um, I worked for the first six years with no income. I basically gave up my career and um, we refinanced the house, lived off credit cards, you know. What was your uh, career, it, by the way? Just I was out of curiosity. In, I was in sales and marketing and um, 
you know, I previously worked um, as a regional advertising uh, salesperson for PC Magazine, so I was in the technology business. And I think actually a lot of our success has come because both my husband and I came from sales and marketing and we had business backgrounds and we had, we had tough careers. I mean, we, PC Magazine was a really tough company to work for and you had to be extremely professional and work really hard and we, you know, got some really good habits. Miller transformed Cure Duchesne into a venture philanthropy firm. When one of their investments was bought out by a large company, Cure Duchesne reaped some of the rewards. Now Cure Duchesne is a philanthropic venture capital player in Duchesne disease with a $5.6 million budget. And it all came about because Deborah was able to leverage her networks to create a leadership network across the country. The second thing they all had in common, mission-driven social impact mentality. Now, what do I mean by that? The recession stars were extremely mission-driven, looking for all resources that supported the mission rather than just money. Tommy Nixon and Kevin Choi, founders of the young Christian organization Solidarity, they wanted to find jobs in an impoverished neighborhood in Fullerton. When local summer camps closed because of the recession, Solidarity just created a free summer camp for kids with no initial budget and were able to garner loyalty in the community. Um, like one of those things was soulful. When the state of California cut all summer schools, we were able, because of our network in the city, we were able to respond to that and like replace, basically replace uh, summer school in, in a number of uh, low-income schools. With no one paid for it, it was all free. And so, and that was kind of part of the, that was part of it, I think, in this whole thing, Zoot, is that we were really agile and we are a little crazy. Like we were so like, value-based that we just did everything like it didn't matter there weren't like a lot of barriers like oh we don't have any money or we don't have a lot of staff or but we just figured out ways to to make it happen so that first year it was within six weeks we were able to like pull off this like this huge summer program like citywide it was pretty awesome but and then we did during that time we did create um a social enterprise but but mission-based yeah um and that was, that was screen printing. The ways Tommy Nixon is speaking about include forging partnerships within the community to make change. Through strategic partnerships, Solidarity also started Solid T, a screen printing shop that generated an additional $400,000 in revenue. The organization eventually sold that shop to the same youth who they had trained to run it. And next, they started Solid Coffee, a cafe. They went from a $150,000 budget scraped together from family and friends to more than $1 million budget in 2018. Solidarity is now a workforce investment partner with federal and state grants and contracts and continues to expand. So people who grew from small to large, they were all about the mission and they created ways to create social impact. They did it by gathering people together and creating a response to a need. Four, strategic partnerships. The next thing that the recession stars have in common is that every interviewee that I spoke with touted the importance of expanding their networks and leveraging growth through alliances with government, schools, other charities, and businesses. The Boys and Girls Club of Santa Ana director, Robert Santana, who came from a military background, he started as a volunteer there at the club. After seeing the operation, he told the leadership it wasn't acceptable. 
the very first week as a volunteer. My thought was I'm gonna spend three weeks here, I'm gonna meet some kids, I'm gonna mentor them, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna head out. That's that was my uh, commitment. I was a very annoying volunteer. <laughs> I, I was one of those people. I walked in, I would ask, like, what is it that we do here? What is it, you know, and I and I used the word we, even looking back at it, like, what is it that we do here? And the answer that I got almost consistently with all the staff was we keep kids off the street. And almost every damn time that someone said it, they had like this smirk and like swag to their answer. And it pissed me off every single time that someone felt so like proud of themselves and impressed with themselves that they were keeping kids off the street. And here comes annoying Robert, 25 year old, knows everything. And I just, I literally just said, I don't think that that's impressive. Anyone can do that. If you bought pizza and an Xbox, you literally can keep kids off the street. First week, volunteer, not going to say what they do, fire me. The club allowed him to set up a pilot program across the street as a teen center. It flourished with little money because he marshaled many resources and partnerships in the community. He gave them a more profound program in STEM education, sports, robotics, and more. He trained youth in the club to lead his staff. In less than two years, he was promoted to CEO. Since 2008, the club has merged with many other clubs through partnerships to form the Boys and Girls Clubs of the Orange Central Coast and continues a high upwards trajectory. Robert Santana spoke at our GNSU G3X Conference on Leadership in 2019, and you can listen to that podcast available here on this feed. Four, innovation and quality. The next thing our recession stars have in common is that they took advantage of situations created by the recession to further their mission. They built small pilot programs, experimented, improved quality, and grew them into mainstream programs. They were innovative. And if you want to hear about innovation, there's a podcast about that on our feed. Creative Solutions founder, philosophy PhD, and educator Ryan Cargando was serving as a dean of a graduate school in the Philippines when his wife became ill from cancer. In 2000, they moved back to the U.S. for her treatment. He changed careers and became first a social worker and then quickly worked his way up to administrator at an agency for foster youth. The system of therapy upset him. He started Creative Solutions in 2005 as a tribute to his wife, who passed away in 2002. Using $250,000 he received from the sale of a personal investment property. Cargando immediately secured contracts from the County of Riverside for counseling services, but he only made money when new clients signed up with his service. He kept tweaking his program, partnering with families of clients to help him improve. He would ask them what they need and make his services better. His service became a movement of families intertwined with his mission. His reputation for excellent care and service snowballed. So once uh, my program was approved by the state of California, I am now able to offer my program to the different counties. I was able to obtain a contract with Riverside Department of Public Social Services to provide treatment services for children who are abused and neglected. If I reflect back on how the evolution, the evolution of uh, the program. Um, as you know, placement contract is not really a guarantee. There are many of us here in the Inland Empire. My first office was in Moreno Valley. 
And in Moreno Valley itself, in the city, there's probably around uh, nine foster care agencies during that time. So when I started in 2006, uh, the first year, we're blessed to be able to, to really project good outcomes with our kids. Um, I was able to successfully train and develop families, foster families, who who really sincere and um, made an impact with the kids that are placed in their homes. Because a, a very big chunk of this, uh, I think, is uh, outcomes when it comes to specific placement. Then you get like a name recollection from the county and they say, oh, you know, this agency, we can, can rely on them. Or, you know, let's, let's use this agency. So 2006, 2007, and actually, um, 2008, um, then while many programs at that time were closing, uh, were shutting down, uh, people were just referring to us. By 2009, he expanded his organization with new contracts in San Bernardino County and grew his budget to $1.5 million. As other counseling organizations shrank and closed during the recession, he picked up more families from these organizations that were going out of business. By 2018, he served four Southern California counties and posted gross revenue of $4.1 million. Five, earned income. Earned income was the largest source of growth for all of our recession stars. 69% of the recession stars' budgets grew entirely from earned income. Of the remaining 31%, earned income was also a large percentage of their revenue. 21% of the recession stars earned the vast majority of their funding, 85 to 100%, from user fees such as soccer fees for youth soccer league or pet fees for an animal shelter. 21% earned most of their income from a mission-based social enterprise such as Solidarity Solid Tea Screen Printing Business or Cure to Shane's Venture Philanthropy Fund. 27% earned their revenue from government contracts, such as Creative Solutions. The remaining 31% use a more traditional blend of income, such as the Boys and Girls Club model. Dr. Kim, the founder of Dell Soul School, created her PhD thesis on better ways to educate severely developmentally disabled youth. And so they, uh, in other schools, they'll sit them down and they'll force them to read those words and then give them a break. And the kids will fight it and fight it and fight it and have severe behaviors. And, um, but they'll master reading those 10 words, but they have these severe behaviors. And then they come to us and then we take a look at where does the child have no behaviors? And we start them um, doing, watching a movie or something. And then we watch for those cues of when they're bringing out words or words they prefer. And then we increase their, their movie time for saying those words. And we turn it into where kids can, these kids may learn to read and write words that are at a, um, you know, a seventh grade level. It doesn't matter. What matters is that the kid is loving the learning. And then they use it forever after that. The school district started contracting with Dr. Kim to develop services for these kids. Soon, they asked her if she would start a school for them. She founded Del Sol, a school working with kids who cannot be mainstreamed into local schools because they pose a danger to themselves or others. She began in one school district with two classes of 10 kids in 2008 and a budget of $323,000. The school district pays the school for every student. By 2018, she served 50 students across five school districts. The Del Sol Academy posted a $2.5 million budget. She replaced school site services that simply gave students busy work 
and she replaced it with innovative services that educate students with severe disabilities in a rigorous curriculum. I have worked with so many organizations as a consultant that will ask me to come and help them raise funding. And I'll get there and I'll run into the founder. Usually it's an, an older person and they say to me, oh, we could do so much if we can just get the funding, but I can't get anyone to help me. And I'll say, well, have you talked to um, volunteer organizations? Have you talked to colleges and universities about getting interns? And they'll say, oh, yeah, we've done all that. And people have come out, but they won't do it the way I need it done. These are organizations where it's more about the founder's ego than it is about solving the need. And they are climbing the pyramid of failure. The pyramid of failure starts at the bottom with a broad base of need, and then they start to climb that by thinking about a mission and looking for funding so they can do that mission. And they never get past the second rung because they get stuck looking for funding. The difference is that our recession stars, they didn't climb the pyramid of doom. They did the seven step cycle for success. Step one, they identified a need that was not being met. Step two, they gathered a network of people. The recession stars, their goal was not to seek out funding. Their goal was not even to lead a mission. Their goal was just to care about a need enough to gather other people together to care about it as well. And in the gathering, they created an army of people who were leading for that need. They created an army of people that had resources, maybe not funding, but resources. They created strategic partnerships. And in the process, they might get a funder or two to help. But it wasn't about getting funding. It was about gathering people, gathering resources to address this need with a mission. Step three, they led the people they gathered and created an organization. Step four, they planned for that mission. They put together a plan that would work because they had some leadership training. And step five, they went out and they did that mission. And usually that involved creating an earned income stream, either through contracts, through fees for service, or through social enterprise that would create a sustainable source of income for that mission, not looking for the occasional grant and getting hung up on the pyramid of doom. Step six, they told people what they were doing. They shouted from the rooftops their success stories, and people came running. That helped them to gather more people, more resources, and to grow. And that is step seven, to grow that need to a new level where they could scale up their programs. And because their programs were small, they could innovate. They could experiment. They could trial and error their way to success. And when they had proof of concept, grow it by scaling it up which brought them back to the beginning. Now they could address the need on a whole bigger level. And with that new level, they could gather more people, lead them, plan, do the work, tell, grow, and start the circle over again, each coil getting higher and higher and bigger and bigger as an organization. They didn't grow by hiring a fundraiser and doing traditional fundraising. They grew through telling their stories, gathering people, gathering resources, leading them, planning, doing the work, telling the stories, and scaling up. Anyone can do the seven steps to success that we need to learn for social impact leadership. So what did we learn? Funding doesn't magically come from donor fairies. Funding from social profit comes just like it does in the for-profit sector, from having a better product 
and earning it. Every type of charity has earned revenue streams, sometimes not even considered when they are planning. We, as organizations, grow through strategically finding allies and partners within our networks, empowering others to lead our cause, and evangelizing our mission everywhere we go. We become Tom Sawyer painting the fence, making it look so amazing that everyone wants to grab a brush. We grow through sound management practices, planning, and development of sustainable streams of income. Our recession stars prove that these methods of social impact leadership work. Success is a cycle of finding a problem that needs an answer, gathering friends to solve it together, doing the work as a collective, and then telling that story to bring more friends. Albert Einstein said, strive not to be a success, but to be of value. It is this mentality that made recession stars a success. Thank you to the Gene Eschy Center for Nonprofit Research, California State University Fullerton, and the College of Business and Economics for supporting our podcast. Our supporters include the Orange County Community Foundation, Southern California Gas Company, and you, our listeners. Thanks for the music provided to us by the California-based Brazilian Coro Ensemble, Grupo Falso Baiano. Have a great week, free from BS. Mm-hmm.